So thank you guys for being here today. Um, kind of fun Sunday, move up Sunday. Uh, if you do have students, be sure to stick around for a few minutes afterwards. Um, we'll have uh, kind of a, a party favor treat out in the courtyard there. And if you didn't get a chance to take a picture and just kind of commemorate move up Sunday, do that uh, before you leave too. So glad you guys are here. I, I recognize a lot of faces, but there are some that I do not. If I didn't get to meet you, um, my name is Matthew. Uh, get to, to be the lead pastor of this rabble. And uh, I think that's a word, right? Teachers, is that a word? Rabble? I don't know. Yeah, rabble rousers. I mean, if you're rousing something, it has to be, right? Um, and so if I didn't get to meet you, I'd love to meet you afterwards. Super glad you guys are here. We are back in the book of Philippians this week. If you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and open to Philippians chapter 3. Uh, last week, we, we tackled a text that uh, a lot of times would just kind of be read in passing, but it was a text a lot about how we honor those who have invested in our lives and, and actually kind of a challenge for us, too, to invest in others the way we take this idea that we have been called and made for more. Um, if you missed that and you'd like to get caught up, you can find all of our messages on, on the website and other places where podcasts can be found. But today, uh, we're starting chapter 3 which means that we're halfway through the book of Philippians, but Paul kind of treats it as, as his kind of his runway or his landing place. Um, he's starting to wrap things up. We talked about the fact when, when we look at Philippians, we look at it, Paul is writing it to A, update a partner family or church family, uh, but also just to kind of take that opportunity to teach them like deep theological truths because that's what Paul does. But it's also a very encouraging book. By comparison to, you know, if you read 1 Corinthians, for instance, and, and some other of the epistles that Paul wrote, like there is correction there. But in most of Philippians, what he's doing is he's kind of encouraging them. And he's encouraging them to continue to be who they've, they've become, who God's made them. And he's encouraging a very unique people, um, mostly Greek. And, and as a matter of fact, not just Greek, but like super Greek, especially considering they weren't living in Rome proper or Greece proper, but they were, they were kind of outskirts of that, but they were treated as real Greek citizens, even though they didn't live there, or true Roman citizens rather, even though they didn't live in and around Rome. And so just a unique family. Uh, today, Paul is going to, uh, if we read it just without thinking, it would sound like he was bragging. Okay, I think we have some perceptions, or at least I used to have some perceptions of Paul uh, growing up. I thought he was a hard man. I thought he was uh, a very prideful writer, and I would even read it, and I'm like, why is he the example? But I think we do have to ask, why is he saying what, is he, what he's saying? What does it mean to them? What does it mean to us? And normally there's application in text in which we say, okay, as a result of this text, let's think about what we see, what we hear, what we know, what was said to them, what it says to us, and then what do we do with it? Today, like I'll go ahead and tell you, the application is just like three questions I think we need to answer. And it's not so much things that we need to do, but it is, it's like mental effort, heart effort, things that we need to go through to make sure we understand why Paul is saying what he's saying at this time, at this place, to these people, and what does it mean to us. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to jump in, and we're going to be in chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is, it is yours, and it's written to us so that we may know you, uh, know you fully, know you better, and so that we can make you known. God, we thank you that it's not just simply an instruction manual or a textbook, but God, it is your word to us to make yourself known to your people. Um, God, today I pray as we look at it that we do not add anything or take anything away. Um, we are faithful to, to seek you and what you're trying to tell us through your word today. Uh, God, thank you for uh, just time to sit uh, as your church, to listen, to learn, and to be shaped uh, by your word to us. We love you, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. 
So we're going to read verses 1 through 11, and then we'll kind of go through and, and talk a bit about what's going on. Chapter 3, verse 1 says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Verse 2, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has more reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the, of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes through the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. And so Paul is beginning a, a thick kind of heady text um, and, and it's a lot like the beginnings of chapter 2. We could take about two or three verses at a time, spend about six weeks here. But to be honest, the readers of Philippians, that's not how they were reading it. They were kind of reading it in a sitting, one reading or one hearing kind of a thing. And so we want to do the same while we're reading the book of Philippians now. And just kind of in asking the question, like, why is Paul saying what he's saying? And, and why does it matter to the Philippians? So first of all, I will admit, in starting in chapter 3, there's... There's a little bit of confusion that there's not a whole lot of agreeance upon uh, the way he starts. He says, finally, my brothers, it's almost marking the end, but then he says, rejoice in the Lord. We got that. He says, but to write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Don't know why he said that. Like, I'll just be honest. There are times when I read scripture and there's just things that I don't know and things that people don't know. We weren't alive then. And it's, it doesn't change the meaning of the text, but sometimes I just like to point them out because I, I do. I like finding things that I just, I don't know. And maybe that is unsettling to you, but to me, it's, it's not. Like, I just, I don't know. I like it. It lets me know that I'm, I'm still not smart. And uh, so there's, there's places for me to go. But he says, to write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. We don't believe that he wrote another letter to the people of Philippi. He didn't reference that. We don't know exactly what he's talking about here. But we do know, let's let the things we do know inform what we don't. Uh, he does say a couple things here is safe for you. He's going to say, with that, he's framing this idea, I'm going to lay some things out for you that you need to know for your safety and for your good. And so we can go ahead and start with an understanding that this text, to a degree, is going to be like a warning of sorts. Not, not so much a correction, but a warning. He's going to toss something out there for them to hear, for them to understand, so that they may not do something that they should not, or think something they should not, be something they should not. And he says, so, it's no big deal for me. I'm going to write it to you. Whether you've heard it before, I don't know how, me, he does, but he's like, it's, it's good that you hear it. And so this is what he says, verse 2. He says, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate 
the flesh. Now, in this very first part, um, there's, there's a lot of debate as to whether or not he's speaking to a specific group of people that would have been in and around Philippi or it was something else. Most likely what we have is Paul knows the, the pattern of uh, what we would call Judaizers and the way that they infiltrate the church. If we read the book of Galatians, we read Corinthians, we see that there were people called Judaizers in which they knew Jesus, they had heard the gospel, but yet they were also applying other ideas from Jewish practice or Hebrew practice. And like it's saying, yes, you need Jesus, but you need these other things too. And so he's making a warning about this type of people or this type of teaching, this thing that may present itself in their pursuit of Jesus. Now, in this place where they live, like I said, Philippi, uh, mostly Roman. Like when I say mostly, like 99% Roman. And so very few natural-born Jewish people. And so for someone to come in and say these things, it would have been odd. It would have been, it would have been different. And maybe it would have been appealing for those very reasons. But he's pointing out from the very beginning, he's like, I want you to watch out for a certain type of people or type of teaching. But he calls them a couple things. And it's very interesting that he does. He calls them dogs and he calls them evildoers. And then he talks about something that they would be doing as a result. Now for Paul to say this, it's almost like he's poking fun at himself just a little bit. Because previously, if Paul, which we'll give qualifications for this in just a minute, if he was calling someone a dog, he would have been referring to someone who was non-Jewish. He would have been referring to, to a Gentile. Because that's the way that Jews generally thought of people that didn't worship the one true God, or they were pagan, they had other practices, they were generally called dogs. And so for Paul to say this, he's going to flip it around in just a second and kind of poke fun at what he used to be. And he says, so look out for the dogs. Secondly, he said, look out for the evildoers. And the evildoers here are going to be people, believe it or not, who are practicing, wait for it, Jewish law. And he's calling them evildoers. Again, poking fun at himself just a little bit. We'll get to his heritage. But he's saying, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. And this is one way that you'll know them, is they will mutilate the flesh. In this, the actual Greek here, it's kind of a, a play on the same word that we have for circumcision. Um, cutting around, kind of an idea. If we wanted to draw a picture, we're, we're not going to. But either way, it was kind of a, a play on the words there. But he was like, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. One way that you will know them is they're going to try to convince you that you need Jesus, but you also need circumcision. And they're actually advocating it for adult men who are now following Jesus that you need this too. He says, I want you to look out for this. Beware of this. And they're called Judaizers. Again, they were people that had heard of Christ and were maybe bound to that for a minute, but then they started drifting back and saying, yes, we need Jesus, but we also need all these other parts that we had remembered. Like going way, way back, circumcision was a sign of being God's people. And the very first circumcision, it was done to adult men, and it would have probably been pretty R-U-F-F. I mean, rough, really rough. And, and then later, you know, children, young males at, at birth, shortly after birth, were circumcised as a sign that you are my covenant people. It was a sign of that. But I'll go ahead and let the cat out of the bag. As a result of Jesus, we're no longer bound by the old customs as a sign of who we are because now Jesus is our sign. Jesus is our covenant. Jesus is the seal of our salvation and the spirit that lives in us. But he says, beware of the evildoers, the evildoers. And so he's going he's gonna to flesh this out a little bit. Sorry for the play on words there. Um, and then he says this in verse 3. He says, contrary to them, understand this, we, we are the circumcision. He's like, we, the body of Christ, we are those who have been cut away from the rest of the world. And now we sit separate as a result 
of Jesus. He says, we are the circumcision. We worship by the Spirit of God and the glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Contrary to those who I'm warning you about, they're going to put all of their confidence in the flesh, even though they're claiming Jesus, but they're claiming Jesus with these works, these things that you must do in order to be acceptable. And one of those that would have been evident is if you're a male, you must be circumcised. And if you're not, then you're probably not yoked to Jesus. That's what he would have said. He said, but contrary to that, I'm warning you against them because I'm telling you, it's not about whether or not cut around has occurred at this point. It's about who we know. For we have been cut away from the rest of the world. We worship in spirit, not in flesh, and that is not what we're placing our confidence in anymore. And so it's an interesting warning given to the people of this time because for them, they wouldn't have had, uh, they wouldn't have had context for this. They, they would not have had the, the Jewish law that many of them would adhere to before hearing of Jesus. Like, it wouldn't have been there. And, and I think that's important to note because we don't either. Because for the most of us, like, I, I know most of us pretty well, and I know most of us are not from Jewish descent. So we didn't have these Jewish ideas, these Jewish rituals, these Jewish practices that we clung to at some point before Jesus. Now, we may have a few, but for the most of us, we don't. But yet, Paul's still saying it to the people of Philippi. And so I want to make that clear. Like, he's still telling them, and I want to answer why in just a minute. And so then Paul continues. He says, um, after we're not putting our confidence in the flesh, verse 4, he says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. He's like, look, I, I want to tell you, like, I'm warning you against this, okay? But I want to tell you that I have reason to warn you against it. He's like, I want to tell you, like, if, if anyone thinks that they're qualified to come in and say, look, it is about the things that you do, the works that you commit, uh, the actions that you make to make you more acceptable to God. If anyone thinks he has reason to brag on that, I just want to tell you, I have more. Like, I have more. Paul is an interesting, very unique uh, individual. Number one, like, when we see him in the book of Acts, and I do want to clarify, when we see him in the book of Acts, we see him enter as Saul. Okay, later after his conversion on the road to Damascus, we see him as Paul. Granted, God did not change his name. I know that we would like to make that a very applicable point and say, when God changes you, sometimes he even changes your name. It's not what happened. The reason we see Saul and Paul is because Saul lived in two different worlds. Saul lived in the world as a Jew, as a Hebrew, but he also lived in the world as a Roman citizen. He was both. Uh, he was born Jewish, but he was born under Roman authority. He was educated as a Jew. He was raised Jewish, but he was also raised Roman. Paul was a very interesting dual citizen. He had both. And there were times in which he would pull out the Roman citizenship. We talked about that when he visited Philippi the very first time. He was like, hey, I do want to let you know you're trying to let me walk out the back door after you beat me and arrested me, but you should probably know that I'm a Roman citizen and what you just did was breaking the law. And so they kind of freaked out. Like, he would use that from time to time. And so Saul was his Jewish identity. That's very much a Jewish name. We'll trace that back in just a minute when he talks about his lineage. But Paul, on the other hand, Paul was Greek. And so he was both. He was both. We don't know if it was like Saul first name, Paul second name. But what we do know is this. Paul, when he was sent out by God through Jesus and the Holy Spirit, he went to Greek people. And going to Greek people, if he was going to be all things to all people, as he would talk about, he would be Paul to those people, not Saul. And so Paul was a very interesting individual. It was very rare to have two, uh, one person walking in both worlds, Jewish and Roman. But in this place, he's hearkening back to his Jewish 
ideas, his Jewish nature, his Hebrew uh, person. He says, so if anybody comes to you thinking that they have the qualifications to brag to you about who they were, what they do, all of those things, I want you to understand, I'm telling you to look out for them, and I'm telling you I have more reason to brag. So he's like, look, it's coming from an authority right now. And so this is what he says. He says, if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. And then he starts to list out his qualifications. Verse 5, circumcised on the eighth day. If you go back to Leviticus 12, it lays out some ideas for circumcision. And if, if you were in a good, uh, God-fearing, God-honoring Jewish household, on the eighth day is when they would circumcise baby boys. He says, that was me. He said, that's the kind of household I grew up in. So after that week had passed, after my mom had, had waited seven days, on the eighth day I was circumcised, That's how my life started. From the very beginning, from the very beginning, I was not just a little Hebrew, I was completely and utterly Hebrew. And so he says, on the eighth day, I was circumcised. He said, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, not only was I circumcised on the eighth day, but I can trace my lineage all the way back, like all the way back. Like if I did a show of hands, like, uh, let me just ask, can any of you just say, for instance, Trace your heritage back to Exodus. No? Okay. What about, um, what about promised land? After, after we wandered for 40 years, right? Yeah, yeah. After wandering 40 years, getting into the promised land, most of those people dying, new generation born in the promised land. Anybody trace it back there? What about King David? Rule of King David? Come on. I mean, that's cake. What about, hey... What about uh, time of Jesus, like the zero, zero to 20 A.D.? Anybody? No? What about uh, Christopher Columbus? Anybody trace it back? 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. Late, for, late 1400s, not even the early 1400s, late 1400s, written record. Anybody? No? What about Civil War? We might be able to get a few back there. Okay. Paul stops, and he says circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, but not just the people of Israel. I can go back to the tribe. There were 12. There were 12. And he's like, I know exactly which tribe I came from. Um, Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was about the time that lineage was starting to be recording. I can go all the way back there. So again, if anybody's coming to you and telling you that they have reason and the authority to tell you that you need to do X, Y, and Z in addition to Jesus, understand, I've done more, seen more, been more, born earlier, know all of these things. I have every right to tell you all of that. He said, I can go way back, way back. From the tribe of Benjamin, it's not just, he didn't just say one of the 12 tribes, but he said the tribe of Benjamin, lineage back to the one of the 12, um, the first King Saul, whom he was named after, came from the tribe of Benjamin. That's probably where he got his name. As a matter of fact, uh, later, the same tribe of Benjamin switched loyalties to King David. Uh, They aligned themselves with Judah, rebuilt the temple after exile, and all the way forward, we've seen God moving in this tribe of Benjamin, remaining faithful to God, not just one of the tribes, not just one of the tribes that that, uh, admonition was brought on and, and curses were brought on and things like that, but they were faithful the entire time. And Paul said, yeah, that's, that's me. All the way back. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, but not just of the people of Israel claiming I'm Jewish, but like, no, 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 all the way back to one of the twelve, and not just one of the twelve, but to the tribe of Benjamin. And then he says a Hebrew of Hebrews. Hebrew of Hebrews. It sounds a little bit redundant. He's like, no, you've already said this. He's like, no, no, no. I actually speak the language. Like, I speak the language. Like, the language. 
like the language your grandparents don't even understand. Like, I'm educated in it. I know it. I can speak it. Some say it was an ancient Hebrew, it was Aramaic, most likely it was Aramaic, and some form of that. And he's like, no, I'm, if you want to know, just ask me to speak. I'll, t- I'll tell you. We'll change languages right now. I can do, yeah, I can do Greek, I can do Aramaic, I can do Hebrew, I can do all of those. I'm multilingual. And by the way, the, the native tongue that I speak is the native tongue of our people, the people that you claim, but the people I really am. And so he's like, if anybody has qualifications, it's me. And then he says, not only a Hebrew of Hebrews, but then he's like, and, and about this law that we're talking about, about this law that people are coming to you and saying, you need to know Jesus, but you also need this law, because that's what it was boiling down to. He was like, about the law, if people are asking for qualifications, yeah, I was, uh, yeah, I was a Pharisee. And that might not mean anything to you. They would have loosely known Pharisees. We know Pharisees as a punchline in Bible culture. But what a Pharisee was is they were someone that knew the law forwards and backwards so that they could, A, live it out publicly and teach it exponentially. And in the process, they were trying to make converts to the law. He's like, if you want to know anything about the law, who would you go to? You would go to a Pharisee. They were almost like lawyers of biblical law. As a matter of fact, they presided over court kind of stuff. Like if there was an argument, if there was a problem about the law, who would you go to? You would go to your neighborhood Pharisee. And he's like, you know, you want to know about the law, how I felt about it, how much I knew it? That was me. I was one of them. I was one of them. So born... Israelite, circumcised on the eighth day, uh, yeah, of the tribe of Benjamin, speak the native tongue of, of real Israel people, real Hebrews, and by the way, Pharisee, knew the law forwards and backwards. People are coming to you as purveyors of that. No, 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 I really know it. I know it. And then he said, okay, continuing on, he's like, so a Pharisee, and then he's like, oh, and a zeal, Zeal, if you want to measure how zealous I was, by the way, I loved the law so much when this new way came out, the way, which is called the church now, the bride of Christ, um, he was like, yeah, I persecuted him, I killed him, I took him out. That's how zealous I was. The mark of a zealot back then was how willing someone was to fight for something. And he was like, oh, I fought. I fought, I drug him off, I had him killed, did all of that. He could have pointed back to the very first martyr whose death he presided over as Stephen was dropped into a pit and stoned until he gave up his spirit. Shortly thereafter, he was blinded on the road to Damascus. He's like, if you want to know about qualifications, qualifications, oh, I got those. I got all of them. He says, talking about zeal, he's like, I was a persecutor of the church. And then he even goes one step further. And he says, then, as to righteousness under the law, not just righteousness, not what he's going to talk about in a minute, but his righteousness under the law, right us actions under this law that was given. He said, I was blameless. That's a bold claim. Bold claim. Now, this is what was acted out that people could see, the things that were perceived. He was like, yeah, that law that I was teaching people because I was a Pharisee, that law that had been planted in me since I was born, circumcised on the eighth day of the tribe of Benjamin, yeah, I was perfect blameless. No one could bring a charge against me. These are Paul's qualifications. He says, so if anyone, you know, says that they have rights to tell you about this, understand I I have more. I have all of them. He's like, if there's a box to check, I can check it. I can check it. And so if we stopped right there, we'd be like, ah, Paul, I don't understand. Man, I'm really confused. Why, why are you telling a bunch of Greek people this? A bunch, of, a bunch of Roman citizens this, that have really no background in Jewish law. They're really not trying to find it. You're warning us against people coming in, trying to tell us about this. And here, here it is. He says, but whatever gain I had, 
Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. He said, all those qualifications that set me apart, compared to Jesus, they're nothing. Compared to Jesus, they're nothing. What Paul's about to introduce here is like a profit and loss sheet. Gain and loss. For us, it would be profit, loss, sheet, or statement, like the things that are good versus the things that we've lost. And he says, man, all of those things that I just listed that set me apart and made me far, far more qualified than anyone you've ever met to talk to you about the things that you need to do in relation to the law, he's like, they're all just nothing compared to Jesus. Compared to Jesus. Then he repeats himself. Verse 8, he says, Indeed, just to tell you again, I'm not lying. I count everything as lost because the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. He's like, you heard me right. You heard me right. All of those qualifications that revealed my identity, that revealed my lineage, that revealed my tradition, that revealed my heritage, that revealed my genetic capability and propensity to claim pride. He's like, all of those things, uh, compared to the surpassing worth of Jesus, they are utter garbage. Garbage. In order that I may gain Christ. What Paul is so passionately and eloquently doing in this moment. Yes, there's a warning there, but Paul is always very careful to reveal the true nature of the gospel. The true nature of the gospel, and the true nature of the gospel that he's trying to reveal here is he's saying this in just a very succinct way. It's more valuable than anything you've ever had, anything you ever will have. It is the most precious the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus, my Lord. And the fact that he puts the possessive, my Lord, on there, it's like the worth of just knowing God. You know, so the, the idea of intimately, relationally knowing him as my Lord, as the one who directs my life, as the one who owns my future, as the one who redeemed my past, there's nothing of more value. Nothing of more value. I don't know that the Philippians were suffering from the same ills and woes that we do, but here are ours. Christ is of some worth, but he's not of ultimate value to us. And when I say us, I just mean the American church at large. He's of some value, but he's not of ultimate worth. That's why we are where we are. I mean, I'm not speaking politically, I'm not speaking religiously, I'm speaking relationally of the church to Christ. Like, that is why we are where we are. He's a great addition to the things that I do, but he's not chief. He's not utmost. He's not surpassing. Paul's trying to remind the Philippians, Jesus must be primary. Primary utmost, all, everything, surpassing worth. He must be that. And everything else needs to look like garbage by comparison. 
It's hard for the Philippians. It's hard for us. But it's why we need to hear it. Jesus is a great addition to our self-help practices, our, our therapies, our agendas, our protocols to make better individuals. Problem is, that's not what Jesus came to be. He didn't come to be an addition. He didn't come to be an addendum. He came to be life that we so desperately needed that we couldn't attain from any other source. Not the law, not my tradition, not my heritage, not my lineage. None of that will provide me hope. It's only Jesus. It was true for Paul. It was true for the Philippians. It's true for me. And it's true for you. This is the nature of the gospel. Jesus must be primary. Primary. He says, so all these things that I just listed as my qualifications to speak to you about the things that you may or may not need to do, they're, they're of no value, no importance compared to Jesus. All of those things that I held dear, that I would have put on my ID card, <laughs> that I would have had on my tattoo, whatever it may have been, he's like, they're just... They're useless. They're useless. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. Count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Verse 9, and be found in him. And be found in him. So I'm not adhering to a new system. I'm not adhering to a new practice. No, no, no. I have been placed from this world, taken from this world, and now I have been placed in life, in world, in theos with Jesus. Like, that's where I've been placed. I have been found in him. Found by whom? Found by God in Christ. And I say that with passion. Why? Because when God looks at me, he must see Jesus or I'm separate. I'm other than. I'm not of his people. I haven't been cut away from the rest of the world and placed in his camp. But when he sees me, if by grace through faith, I have renounced all of these things that now I look at and must count as rubbish. I have been placed in Christ. And that's who God sees. There's no other way. There's no other way. No matter what someone comes to you and tells you, if they ever say, ever say, yes, Jesus is good, but you need this too, you can cut them off right there. I give you full permission. As a matter of fact, Scripture does too. There is nothing we need in addition to Jesus. Not a thing, not a person, not an ink, not a nod, not a law, not a rule, not a standard, just Jesus. That's it. By grace through faith in Christ, he will, we will then be placed in him when God looks at us. He will no longer see the righteousness that I have been trying to attempt and to live out. He will just see the righteousness that Jesus lived out perfectly, without error, without sin, took it to the cross and died for my error, my sin. His righteousness is what God sees. That's why Jesus must be primary. Because my righteousness will never, ever be enough. No matter who told me to pursue it, if it's not Jesus, it will never be enough. Be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. He's like, now the way that righteousness is conveyed to me is by trusting in Jesus and Jesus alone to make me right. Trusting in Jesus and Jesus alone to make me right. Again, the gospel must be primary, nature of the gospel, but then we have to understand that the righteousness that God sees in me is not mine. Scripture says it. I'm not making it up. It's the righteousness of Jesus. 
that we only have by trusting in Jesus to make us right with God, being made right with the Father so that we may know him and make him known. That's it. The simplicity of the gospel is undeniable. It's undeniable. Now, this is not to say that we can go out and live like demons. Like, I'm not saying that at all, but it's, it, it's a cause and effect issue. Like, we get to live separate than the circumcision, living out the circumcision, being cut away. We get to live that in response to what God has done, the righteousness that he has imparted on me through Jesus in the life and death and resurrection of him. But it's not of my works. Verse 10, then he, he gives some reasons for all of this, not just being made right with God, not just the righteousness that doesn't depend on my works, but on faith and faith in Jesus. Verse 10, he says, that I may know him, number one, and the power of his resurrection, all of this so that I can actually know God. This is the crazy thing about the offers of Christianity, that because of what Jesus has done, we are being offered the right, the privilege, and the responsibility of knowing the one true God. Not just knowing about him, not just knowing stories, but literally knowing him relationally, being entwined with him, walking, talking, breathing, speaking to God, hearing from God through his word, through his spirit, through his people. We get to know God. This is the result of this by grace through faith exchange that we can't orchestrate. We get to know God. Not only do we get to know God, secondly to that, we get to know the power of his resurrection. We see that Jesus conquered death, was raised in the newness of life, and now is seated at the right hand of God. Like, we get to encompass that and feel that too. Like, the moment that we enter into that covenant relationship with God, abandoning the former self, seeing it as rubbish, sin included, choosing Jesus instead, like we are promised an eternity with God, the same resurrection that Jesus experienced, we will get to know that power too. In the, at the end of ourselves, at the end of all of this, we will be raised in the newness of life, given brand new stuff. The aches, the pains, the sins, the temptations will be gone. We will be made like Christ to dwell with God in eternity. New heaven, new earth for the rest of it which will not end as a promise and guarantee of the faith. That I may know him, the power of the resurrection, and may, going back to the end of chapter 1, may share in his sufferings too. This faith equation, these things that we are promised as a result of by grace through faith, we're also promised that we'll likely share in Christ's sufferings. Now granted, we, we don't have a very good lens for persecution in the United States. I saw an article this morning that said, parents, get up and take your kids to church. Make the sacrifice and go to church. Number one, I don't like to say go to church. You know my baggage there. Maybe you don't. We don't go to church. We are the church. We come and worship together as the church with the church. So every time somebody says go to church, it, it does bother me. And I'm not going to rebuke you for it. I'll rebuke me for thinking badly of you. But either way, like I, I can't say it. Um, and I don't like to say it. I don't like to think it. And so if you want to adopt some of my language, that's fine. But I don't go to church. Anyway, um, I don't even know where I am now. I don't, I, that rabbit, I chased that a little too hard. Um, Oh, yeah, the article this morning, it said, make the sacrifice, get up and go to church. We don't understand sacrifice and suffering very well. Like, if, if what we call leaving the comfort of our bed or canceling a late day is sacrifice, we don't understand sacrifice. If taking your screaming kids to worship on a Sunday morning is suffering, we don't understand suffering. Is that does not say that it's hard? It's not, it's not to say that it's not hard. Yeah, it's hard. Like I remember growing up in my house, we went to a BOBC, big old Baptist church, and we sat on the third row, regardless of how late we were. And I had an older sister who made us perpetually late. If she had two hours to get ready, it took her two and a half. If she had three, it took her 3.15. My daughter takes after her right now, and I'm trying to fix it, but I can't. But either way, like we, it would be a pain. We would have more fights in our Dodge Caravan uh, on the way to church on Sunday mornings because we went to church. We would have more fights then. And yeah, there was some struggle, but it's not suffering. 
if we call that suffering. It, it, I mean, that's difficulty, okay? It's a bump in the road. It's a roadblock. It, you know, it's a cavity in the long run. It can be fixed. But he says we're also, as a result of faith, we're, we're called, we can share in his sufferings. That may mean that the persecution that Jesus experienced at some point, we're probably going to experience it too if we're living out this faith. And you say, well, man, that's really exciting. It is exciting when we think this, that we are privileged in grace to suffer because Jesus did first. That's, that's what Philippians 1, 27 through 30 says. I mean, by grace you have been saved, but also by grace we've been allowed to suffer. We've been granted grace to suffer and to be saved at the same time. Same grace, same Jesus, same sake of Christ. As a result of faith, we may very well suffer. We may very well be persecuted. We may very well lose things. But at the end of the day, they're just garbage by comparison. Doesn't downplay that it's hard. Doesn't downplay that it's difficult. Doesn't downplay that it's weighty and crushing at times. But we're promised we may suffer. And then he says, becoming like him in his death. That may be an extension of the suffering, or it could just be in a reference to, like him, uh, we will die. We will die to our sin. He died to our sin, not to his own. But then his death was not the end. It was not permanent. He was glorified as a result. Ultimately, his glorification will be revealed when he returns, but we caught a glimpse of it when he was raised in the newness of life, walked among us for 40 days, and then ascended back to where he rightfully belonged. Verse 11, again, this surpassing worth that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. That by any means possible. That's twice he stated that it's worth more than anything. It's worth more than anything. The first time he talked about it's worth just surpassing worth. That's like a value. Again, the profit loss idea. But this, this is saying I'll do whatever it takes. I'll do whatever it takes which may include relinquishing self, relinquishing sin, relinquishing dreams, relinquishing identity, relinquishing whatever. It may mean pursuing certain things, but either way, whatever it takes, that's what I'll do because of the worth. The worth. Here are the three questions. Before I get to the three questions that I think we have to be able to answer as a result of this, I do want us to understand, like, why did Paul point out his heritage, his lineage? Because we all have one. We all have one. I know that you weren't circumcised on the eighth day. I know you weren't born on the tribe of Benjamin, but you were born somewhere to something with something there. And there's a good chance that the way that you were born is still the way that you were living because that's the way that you were born. Now, you might not be. You may have left that. Okay, you may have abandoned that, but either way, it's done something in you. We all have a tradition. We all have a lineage. We all have a background, and we have a couple choices with that background. We can trust that background to be our redemption, or we can trust Jesus. Those are our two choices. We can trust our background to be our redemption, or we can trust Jesus. Those are our only two choices, and you say, well, what if they work together? I'll answer that in just a second. Here are three questions. The first is this, what are we really trusting in for our righteousness? What are we really trusting in for our righteousness? Are we trusting in our, our heritage, our tradition? Are we trusting in our works? Or are we trusting in Jesus? What are we trusting in for our righteousness? Are we trying to live it out? Are we trying to chase it? Are we trying to check all the boxes because we think that we're supposed to and if we don't, God's going to hate me and strike me down because that's not the gospel either. 
Are we trying to go after that? Are we trying to go after uh, how we were born, who we were born into, what the life that my parents gave me? And again, this is not to contradict like, that, that your upbringing was wrong. Like It's not. It's not to say that you were, you were brought into a bad place and your parents taught you dumb things. You just need to ignore all of those things. But again, it is asking us, what are we trusting? And are we trusting in that or are we trusting in Jesus? I think at some point, every boy and girl that grows up going to church, being a part of the church, at some point, they have to take full ownership of their faith in Jesus. They have to. They have to do the mental work. They have to do the emotional work. They have to do the spiritual pursuit to make sure they believe what they've been told they believe. Or else they'll never own it. It took me until I was about in my early 20s before I did what I call the brain dump, that I just dumped everything out of my head and I just started to hold it up to the light of the gospel and the light of Scripture and be like, is this right? Is this right? Is this right? And then you have to go through the mental excursion of like getting rid of the things that aren't in comparison to Scripture. And man, that's hard. Especially if that's part of your tradition, part of your heritage, the way that you were brought up. Does it line up with truth? And truth is found in Scripture, in Scripture alone. This is our, our first and last place that we go. Does it line up? And if it doesn't, we have to get rid of it. Count it as rubbish. Because believe it or not, even Paul, even Paul, whose people, whose people most likely pinned a lot of the Old Testament, he could look at a lot of the things that he did, and he's like, eh, it's not based in truth, it's based on something else. We have to be able to do that. Am I trusting in my heritage, my tradition? Am I trusting in the things that I do? Or am I trusting in Jesus? What am I really trusting in for my righteousness? And I'll give you the answer. Again, it has to be just Jesus. It has to be righteousness that we didn't commit, that he did, and then he gave to us as a result of the exchange, the supernatural exchange of by grace through faith. It has to be his righteousness. Now, we then start to live out this life as a result of what he's granted us. We start to want the things that he wants, hate the things that he hates, go after the things that he desires, but not so that we can be saved, but because we have been redeemed. What are we trusting in? What are we really trusting in for our righteousness? Number two, like it, is this. And this is something we need to ask frequently. Why do I do what I do? Why do I do what I do? Now, if I was going to write a self-help book, I'd, I'd leave that title right there. Why do I do what we do? Because I think, I think you can apply that to any facet of life. But specifically right now, what we're talking about is my life in pursuit of Jesus. This life, like, why do I do the things that I do? Why do I, why do I A, read the Bible or not read the Bible? Why do I do the things I do or don't do? Uh, why do I pray the way that I do or not pray the way that I do? Uh, why do I pursue Jesus or not pursue Jesus? Why do I do the things that I do? Because then we ask this, like, why do I do the things I do to understand that? We're like, and what is the basis of my pursuit? That's not our third question. It's just kind of a secondary question to that one. Like, what's the basis of my pursuit? Is it out of fear that if I don't do X, Y, and Z, I'm not going to be acceptable to God? Or is it I do X, Y, and Z because I have been accepted by God, and this is the way that I believe he lays out in Scripture that I need to live? Why do I do the things that I do? And this, like, to be honest, like, this, this goes into our life as a church so much because we as leadership, we ask that question a lot. Like, why do we do the things that we do? Why do we gather on Sundays? Why do we sing together? Why do we pray together? Why do we listen to Scripture together? Why do we meet in each other's homes? Why do we keep each other accountable to sin? Why do we confess sin? Why do we pursue our city in the name of Jesus? Why do we pursue each other to repentance and confession? Why do we do all of these things that we do? Do we do them so that we can make ourselves better, or do we do them because we think that that's what God's called us to do? And it must be because that's what we think God's called us to do. 
And for any other reason, we're, we're going to do our best not to do it. And I'm not going to say that we're perfect. I'm not going to say that we've done things that have been fruitless and frivolous. We probably have, and we probably will again, but we'll kill them as quickly as we can, and we'll go back to doing our best to do the things that we need to do because that's what God's asked us to do. And so that may mean, to be honest, and I'm not trying to make Origin sound better or worse than any other church family, but we may do things differently because we're asking God as, as often as we can, God, what do we need to do now? How do we need to do it? Why do we need to do it? And if there's a reason other than just Jesus, then we don't need to do it. And if you ever feel at some point that we are pursuing something that is not in line with that idea and that nature, then you come. You talk to us, please. If we're not approachable, we've done something wrong, okay? Please, come and talk to me. Come and talk to Zach. Come and talk to Neil. Come and talk to Andrew. Come and talk to any of our wives. Talk to your community group. They'll bring it to us, whatever. Like, just come. Talk to us. Don't be a rumor mill. Come talk to us. If there's something, just ask. And maybe we need to go to God in prayer and be like, God, is this something we need to jettison? Is this something we need to kill? Is this something we need to change? Why do we do what we do? And again, this doesn't mean that everything you've done since you were born is bad, but it means you need to be willing to hold it up to the truth of Scripture and say, do I need to continue to do this? Whatever it may be. And it may mean that something you've been doing is just wrong and you need to get rid of it. Or there's something you haven't been doing that you need to, and you need to add it. Not so that you can be saved, but because you've already been redeemed. Why do we do what we do? And then the third, I think it informs these others. And it also informs and, and confronts our Americanisms, if that's a word. Do we really see the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus as our Lord? I mean, that's the question. Do we really see the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus our Lord? Because if we don't, these other two questions won't matter. They won't. Because we'll have answered them wrongly. <laughs> Do we really see the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus as our Lord? If you don't, if you can sit there and be like, I don't, here's where you start. You just ask God to show you. That's it. Start there. God, show me the surpassing worth of knowing you as my Lord. Show me. Through Scripture, through the Spirit, through His people. Those are our three primary modes. Through His Scripture, through His Spirit, through His people. God, show me the surpassing worth of knowing you as my Lord. And then He'll inform those other two questions. Because again, to restate, Jesus must be primary. He must be primary. If He wasn't meant to be primary... He would have come in a completely different way and done a completely different work. But instead, he came at the perfect time in history, the perfect place in the world to die a death that we could not orchestrate, to conquer death in a way that we couldn't imagine, to offer us something that we could not possibly design. Just Jesus. It informs the way we think about Jesus. It informs the way that we speak of Jesus. And it definitely informs how much we value him. I want to reread verses 10 and 11. All of this at the conclusion of Paul reciting his heritage and his warnings and all of those things. He says, That I may know him and the power of his resurrection, may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Jesus is it. He's promised us more than we could ever possibly be worth 
just if we trust in him and only him and in nothing else. God, we thank you for your word today. We thank you. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the sufficiency of his offering on your altar. Thank you, God, that the wrath that was meant for me was poured out on him. And God, thank you that as a result of by grace through faith, if we trust in his words, his life, his death, his resurrection, we can be made right with you, not of any of our doing, but entirely his. God, I pray for the conviction of your spirit and your people. For those that do know you, convict us, God, to understand that Jesus is of more worth than anything else. And by, com every, by comparison, everything else is garbage. God, let you, please, in us, identify what is valuable. And let it be Jesus at the center. For those who don't know you, God, I pray you would reveal the same thing for salvation. I pray that you would reveal to them, God, through your spirit, God, that it's just Jesus that redeems. It's just faith in him that saves. It's just him that, qual that qualifies us uh, to be known by you.